KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. This is Jeremy Frank, CEO of KCF Technologies, and I am absolutely thrilled to have with me a colleague and really a friend, uh, Buddy Peterson, who is a, a well-known person and the chief operating officer of FTS International, uh, which is a leading provider of oil field services in upstream oil and gas. So I'll say uh, welcome, Buddy Peterson. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. For, for those that don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself personally and your career trajectory and what's landed you in the role that you're in? Wow. That, now, now that, that goes back quite a few years. Um, the, the truth is I grew up in the West, uh, a small oil and gas town, uh, Farmington, New Mexico, the San Juan Basin, kind of the, the humble beginnings. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a school teacher and everybody that we knew was either in the oil field or they were in the oil field. So those are really the only two choices, which is kind of funny. We all kind of giggle about it. The, the ultimate goal was to either be, uh, you know, work for one of the three service companies, Halliburton Slumberjay or BJ, or to work for an oil company. And at the time, you know, there were a few that people don't even remember anymore. There was Tenneco and Unical and some of the others. And so uh, upon graduation from high school, I, I went ahead and didn't go to college. I went right into working in the oil field and decided that that wasn't that much fun. So I went to college. Um, short story longer, several years, a couple of decades later, I, I found myself with a degree in civil engineering and on the front doorsteps of working at Halliburton. And Halliburton, when I went in for the interview, said, well, look, you know, plan on, you'll be moving about every eight and a half to nine months. And seven and a half years later, I was still at the same duty station with several promotions. But I found myself um, moving through the organization in one individual place, which kind of gave me a unique perspective of really understanding a lot about one individual area and building a pretty close-knit team over, over time. Halliburton treated me better than... In, in every facet of my career, both all of the product lines, as well as operations, engineering, sales. And they gave me an opportunity to transfer uh, after about seven years, the first part of my career to go to Western Oklahoma. And over the course of you know the next several years, um, again, we learned a whole lot more about 24-hour operations, about hyper-utilization, about some of the things that we'll talk about probably later in this podcast that really got me to, to where I am today, unbeknownst to those that were doing it, we were all just trying to make a living, trying to find out what was best for the customer. Uh, in about 2007, I had an opportunity to leave um, Halliburton and kind of venture out with a private equity group to kind of go out on my own to, to look at the world through a different lens and try to, I, I took a chance. Um, my, my bride actually encouraged me to do, to, to leave the mothership. And we left and went on this crazy adventure that took us through parts of Texas, parts of Kansas, a sale of a company, a startup of another company, some road rash, some private equity burns, some getting skinned up, build, building a few teams. Uh, and then through all of that, um, over, the, over the course, I was invited to come interview at the FTS organization because they were planning on doing a turnaround or a change. The guy that invited me was gracious enough to, to think that I had a chance at doing it. Um, and lo and behold, five years ago, we, we agreed to come to work at FTS and here, here we are, here we sit today. Yeah, here we are. That's great. I appreciate that history of what puts you here. Can you tell us just a little bit about FTS and what you've been doing for the last five years? Well, sure. F FTS was, I, I've had the unique pleasure of standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, when I came to work in this organization in 2015, it had already so, somewhat matured. It was started by um, two brothers, the Wilkes brothers, who currently own another frat company. But the Wilkes had formed the organization early on. They believe very, very strongly um, that vertical integration gave them a unique position inside the market, as well as an opportunity to grow their business. Um, they sold the business to a, a group led by Tomasic in about 2011. So by the time I joined in 2015, you know, they were, they were, had retired for five years, so to speak. But during the course of the time and during the buildup, they built all of the frack fleets that we currently have today and put together a, a vertically integrated manufacturing center, a machine shop, 
CNC machines, a couple of robots, a, a bunch of other parts and pieces of this business that most people don't have the unique pleasure of getting to oversee or even participate in. And so th that, that's kind of the brief history of, of where they were and where they are. And so what, what we've done since 2015 is really we've streamlined the organization. We've taken a look at does the vertical integration process still make sense? Um, we've whittled some of that down. We've cleaned the organization up, both from an SG&A perspective, closed and consolidated some businesses, uh, some locations that didn't make sense. But really, all in all, we've been hyper-focused on this utilization piece. And, you know, kind of, kind of on, the, on the loose terms, in 2015, just kind of as a data point, we used to average pumping about 10 and a half to 12 hours a day on a good day, four and a half stages a day. And currently today, we're pumping somewhere in the range between 17 to 21 hours a day. And that's pumping hours in a 24-hour period. So you can see that the efficiencies have you know, changed tremendously since 2015 to 2020. How, how different would you say? Is that, is that common across the entire industry? Or is that something that's unique to FTS or a little bit of both? You know, it's a combination of both. I, I think, Jeremy, I, I, would, I would like to stand up and beat my chest and say it's all about what we've done and how hard we've pushed and all the great things that KCF has helped us along the way. But I, I think that would be a little um, one-sided. I mean, the beautiful part about our industry is because of the ups and downs and the massive swings that we have, both from a commodity price, um, from our Exxon and our XTO and some of the other customers that we have, um, we, we are forced to be better, faster, stronger. And, and therefore, because of that, all the service companies have had to move in that direction. But the reality of our efficiencies are a combination of what we've done, what we've put in place, the hard work that our men and women in the field do every day, as well as our customers requiring that uh, to be able to provide, you know, oil and gas for America. Yeah, I'm just, I'm doing the math quickly, you know, for anybody that's listening and is trying to do the same math I am, if, if you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, if, if you go from 12 to 21 hours of active, productive uh, operational time, unless I'm doing the math wrong, I mean, that's, that's eliminating 75% of the non-productive time. <laughs> that you know in a pretty short amount of time i mean that's a that's a pretty remarkable achievement i would say absolutely absolutely you know one one of the other things that we're super proud of as well is that we you talk about that non-productive time even in that 12-hour period of pumping in the in the early parts of 2015 the job design itself in terms of the total hours or minutes of what the customer asks us to do on a per stage basis hasn't changed but five percent over that time so it's still roughly two hours of pumping and how many times can you repeat and manufacture and redo that on location with limited amount of npt and that that's what we're really the most proud of because yeah. if you think yeah. if you think about what that says is you know we, we not only have we eliminated 75 percent of the npt but we've also increased the speed and the rate in which those companies can deliver oil and gas um, to America. It really is quite a remarkable accomplishment. You can, you can slice and dice it any different way, but that's a great way to just summarize it. So I, I think I'd, a lot of people will have a hard time accepting that that's possible. And it, that's just one of the reasons I'm so interested to talk through some of this with you and, and just capture some of the stories from your perspective. Well, Speaking yeah, of, I, I mean, let me be the first one to say, right? I, I mean, when I stand back, when, when we started, my achieved goal when I came to work in 2015, based on my Halliburton training, based on my engineering background, what I thought was absolutely possible was to go from 12 hours a day or, you know, set a different way to go from four stages a day, probably into the six stage range on a per day basis. I mean, that that was my stated long term goal, which would have been 2017, 2018 time frame. So there wasn't anybody that was that was uh, believing that it was possible up to and including this guy. Wow. But here we are. So. And in terms of stages, if you if you do that apples to apples, you, instead of going from four to six, you went from four to what? Um, we're averaging about twelve today. Wow. Triple. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. What would you say is the reason? You know, so so basically, you've done things that you didn't even think your your whole organization didn't think were possible. Just you know, for good reason. You've got a long career. You've been with Halliburton. You've gotten used to basically what's possible and what's not possible. And then you have kind of the whole the whole paradigm of what's possible gets changed. Like, what is it? What are, what are the big reasons why that happened? Oh, I think it's a pretty easy 
one, we've got great people in the field. So, so let's just start there. Um, when, when I said we, we had the opportunity to build on the backs of giants, I mean, it was very, very true. The organization itself was, um, because our equipment is all homogeneous, it's all the same. Everybody knows how to run it. Everybody knows how to operate it. There's not a lot of uh, differences between software, hardware, platforms, any of that. So, so it made the, the workforce kind of plug and play um, in, in all the different basins across North America. So let's, let's take that as the first piece that was a huge advantage that you don't have at a, even at a Halliburton or any of the other big companies. The second piece is when anytime you come in in an opportunity where there's a big management change or there's an opportunity to do it different and your boss, my, my boss, Michael Doss, um, was appointed the CEO and, and Michael's philosophy at the beginning was it's okay, let's break a few eggs. Let's try things that no one has ever tried. Let's do things that no one has ever done because we really don't have anything to lose in the world of game. And so when you have that kind of confidence above you and you have such great men and women below you, it, it just provides an opportunity in an environment that allows you to try anything. And, you know, let, let, let's be quite honest and candid. We did. I mean, we, you know, the motto around here is, look, we'll try anything once. Most of the time we'll try it twice. And if it doesn't work, maybe we'll twist it a little bit and try it again. And then on top of all of that, I'd mentioned earlier about our manufacturing capabilities here. Um, some of the things that we were able to do that some of the others can't is if you wanted to make a design change in one part of our equipment, we, we could run it, not run it up the flagpole, but run it right to the manufacturing facility, put your arm around the guy in the CAD machine, draw it up, talk about it, run it back through the CNC machines, get it out, paint it, and put it in the field within 24 to 48 hours and try it. And so the speed at which we had the opportunity to change things and try things was unheard of. And that also did nothing more than just fuel the flames and fan the flames of all of our men and women that were coming up with ideas and ways to do things and trying something new. And we were just uninhibited, I guess, is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. I, I mean, if I, we've seen that from, our, from my perspective. Our whole company has been interfacing with that. And that definitely, those are the ingredients. I mean, so you've got, you've got the people that are willing, you've got the organizational appetite for change, and then you've got the, the vertical capacity to actually make those changes happen without, without a lot of bureaucracy. It is, it's a pretty unique set of ingredients. Let's, let's, uh, let's go back. So, you know, for, for the listener, take me back to your first introduction to, to my company, to KCF, kind of your impressions, what, what was going on for you at the time, what was going on for the company at the time, and how how that got started. What a great story. Um, and, and look, I love to tell this story. So I hope that the audience can actually feel how excited I am to tell this story because it, it, it's one of my favorites. So, you know, in, in, the, in the version of a great storyteller, everybody just kind of buckle up and sit down and just kind of try to envision what this feels like. So we, we've just gone through this huge management change inside an organization. We've gone from roughly 4,000 people. We've had a massive layoff restructure. We're down to, you know, somewhere in the 2,500 to 3,000 range. We've eliminated all of the bureaucracy, all of, you know, two-thirds of the IT department, all of these gigantic, massive changes that are going on. We're, we're working across North America. Um, we've got a few crews working in the Northeast. One of the customers that we're working for is Equitable or EQT. Very, very large customer, been very, very good to us relative to, you know, keeping our equipment busy. I get a phone call from one of my sales reps in the Northeast and says, look, we're going to have a meeting with EQT and we're going to talk with their technology team. And we, we think it's paramount that you be here because we're going to introduce a, and I can't even remember the very first thing that they said. They, they, they didn't say, you know, all I really heard was maybe noise canceling headphones or some sort of transistors or, or some sort of technology that I had never heard of before, nor was I very interested in at the time. So uh, again, everybody bear with me. Ma imagine this. We fly into Pittsburgh. We get picked up at the airport. We drive downtown. EQT is in a big giant building in downtown Pittsburgh. Very, very ominous, very formal. We go into this meeting and, and we walk into this boardroom and there's multiple floors and multiple boardrooms and insets a couple of people that you can tell just by the look at them that they are very much into technology. And there's four or five other young people in there. And of course, I stroll in and I have my uh, 
operations manager from North America. And, and, and lo and behold, they explain that we're going to go ahead and talk about this KCF technology, what we're going to wind up doing. We've got, we're going to put some sensors and we're going to be able to, to help you predict and optimize um, and, and help you on the safety aspects of your business. Three minutes later, they started going through a set of slides and it dawned on me almost as if you'd hit me in the forehead with a hammer that there's an application and an opportunity, not just for EQT, but across my entire organization. So this is really the only time in my adult career that I've ever walked into a place that I didn't want to be to hear a story that I didn't want to hear to turn right around and have my whole world get changed upside down because the reality was this was something that could transform not just my company, but it could transform the entire industry. Hmm. I wasn't actually there that day. What exactly did you see? Like connect the dots for those because there's so many companies that are trying to do what you did. And this was five years ago. Like, what did you see exactly? So the story is, is really simple. One of the things that we all face, anybody that's in any kind of organization that either provides a service or manufactures anything, anybody that has any humans that work for you or around you, we all face the same situations. One is, how, how do we motivate our employees to do the right thing all the time without having to micromanage them? How do we provide them with data and tools and feedback that they can manage themselves? And how do we have something that's as simple, that isn't complicated, cumbersome, or super expensive that would give feedback almost immediately and predict even before? And that's exactly what was shown on the scoreboard. The scoreboard was, here's a product that you could put on your piece of equipment that could anticipate and could tell you something long before the human ear could hear it or before it would fail. And it was direct it was simple it was you know super techie i suppose if you if you looked at it that way but i looked at it through the lens of an opportunity to provide management feedback for the guys and gals on location that were doing it in the middle of the night on the weekends across every shift that that's what i saw it's that feedback i mean so that that's what's so special i mean just so from my point of view let me go back a couple of years this convergence you know the, the reason that that eqt meeting happened goes back about two, actually three years prior, uh, Penn State University, you know, because we're kind of in the, in the middle of the, the Marcellus Shale, which was the big, you know, hot topic at that time, uh, they, they were funding, you know, technology or not so much funding technology, but they had three different centers focused on different aspects of how to, how to kind of bring innovation to uh, the oil field. And I, I had been in Pittsburgh probably three years prior to that meeting in the same area in South Point presenting at this innovation contest. And I had no clue about oil and gas or anything related to it. And the one gentleman from, from EQT, David Ross, he was one of the judges in this contest. So they did a real good job of, of engaging industry leaders. That led to us doing, we, we actually did a fielded uh, test, a pilot with FTS in 2013. So two years prior, we got sensors out on a pump truck and, and had them out in the field. And I, I went down, I put on a pair of fire retardant coveralls. I didn't even know what that was. There's probably a picture of me somewhere wearing FTS coveralls <laughs> that day. Anyway, we got that out. We did a test. It worked. And then nothing happened for like two years. And this is you know, prior to you being there. But here's what's remarkable is I think what you saw, you weren't the first one to see it. People get excited about industrial IoT and industry 4.0. And I always like to remember that, you know, I mean, there were wireless sensors effectively on the like Apollo moon missions, you know, there's nothing that new about the technology and, and, uh, and yet this whole wave of technology and how it can back impact industry, people have been talking about it since the early 2000s. I mean, we've been funded to do it by the DOE for the first time in 2004. And yet 11 years later, most companies were still having a really hard time about how to operationalize it. And then you look at just a couple of graphs and you were able to, to see how to operationalize that and impact the people. So, so I want to ask you what, and the people is so, is so key because that's what we've seen everywhere. You know, so many of these projects don't play out the way that the technologists think they're going to. And it's, it, it often comes back to winning over the hearts and minds. So what, like when you say that it's simple and we, when you say that you have these, the data and the tools that people can actually work with and that you can use it uh, to motivate people, like you were seeing things that weren't actually there yet in 2015. 
Like, so what is it about you or what is it about FTS, this readiness, kind of this threefold readiness? Like when you reflect on it, why do you think that you were able to connect those dots so quickly? Well, I, I again, would, would tell you that it's, it's three parts. I mean, the first piece is no one ever dawns on a pair of coveralls and comes to work in the oil and gas services and says, look, you know, I, I want to work harder, make less and disappoint my customer. So I think if you go from that base, that baseline that says every employee that works for us in general, they want to do a good job. And just like anybody else, they don't want to work and not get any kind of recognition. They, they, want, they want to do things the right way. I mean, there are some that want to do shortcuts and, you know, we'll get into some of that later. And another part of the business that isn't so hard to work through, it's just the fact that it takes people a lot longer to get engaged and get comfortable. So what I will tell you is the first part is everybody really wants to do a good, a good job. So, so that's the first piece. The second piece, it was as if the slides on the wall were nothing more than a big chief tablet and a big bright flashlight that just shined and said, look, the questions that we all ask and the questions that we all want to know the answers to have always been there. We just haven't been able to find a way to put a light on it and to see it. And that's what this did. And so I, I will tell you, it's, it's the people wanting to do a good job. It's the light or the availability to look at the process or look at the problem through this flashlight that we call KCF. And then the third piece is, is because our organization was so flat, we had eliminated all of the layers of management. And any time that you have the layers of management, you build a bureaucracy. We all know that you have, you know, someone has to get approval or buy-in from his direct report and then you've got someone who's got a matrix report and then you've got someone who's got a matrix report to that report and someone else who has to fund it and someone else who has to agree to it and we were in a unique position that i was fortunate enough to be the coo and there was only two people in line between myself and the pump truck on location and that happened to be the guy that was with me in the meeting jamie peace and the district manager in between and, and that's all there is and that's all there was and so our ability to transform the organization from one day to the next happened because there's really, you know, the distance between the location and the corporate office or the distance between the wellhead and the checkbook was super, super small. Yeah, it's really, it's just a, it's very timely convergence of ingredients. And I mean, I don't even know if you appreciate how remarkable it is. I mean, I know you, you understand what's remarkable about what FTS has achieved in those aspects. But, you know, one of the, a number that gets quoted a lot these days is, uh, is that 92% of all industry 4.0, like IIoT projects and, and implementations fail to achieve the ideal, fail to achieve game-changing results. And I, I mean, so let's talk about your results. If we talk about it, like the, the impact to the company or the, and, and by the way, that, that 92%, that's now, I mean, we're, you're talking about five years ago, 2016, I'm saying now most companies, when, when companies study this, the vast majority of these implementations are having, you know, uh, modest impacts, if any, tell us about your experience. Like what was the impact or the return on investment? Yeah. I don't know. Let's, let's, let's break it down. Let's break it down to a bite-sized bit so people can really appreciate really kind of the, the simplicity of how it all worked because, you know, one of the things that maybe wrapped up in that 92% is we have a lot of people to get way out over their skis and far, as far as the technology goes and what they can achieve and what they can't achieve and some, some of those other things. So, so let me break it down into a bite size, um, kind of a morsel, kind of the way I think about the business and the way I thought about the business at the very, at the very time that I got to watch um, these slides show up in EQT's office. So the majority of our equipment that we have on location is made up of 20 pump trucks. We'll just use that as a nice round number. And on the back of each of those 20 pump trucks is a fluid end. And I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more later about what that fluid end is. But for all intents and purposes, just imagine it's a block of steel or stainless steel or carbon steel or some other, some other type that's roughly 62 inches long by about 29 or 30 inches deep by about 40 inches tall. And inside that it's been bored, um, you know, a, a couple of different directions. And that piece of equipment is 75% of all the maintenance costs inside our organization are tied and related to that piece of equipment that we call a fluid end. 
And well, so, let me just interject, buddy. For those that don't know upstream oil and gas, the, the pump truck is is a tractor trailer, and on the on the trailer is this this pump. The the fluid end is the pump, but it's got an engine. It's got a twenty five hundred horsepower uh, engine driving this pump. So huge horsepower uh, with twenty of these things lined up in concert. Just just for some context. Yes, thank you. And so of those twenty, those fluid ends, like I said, seventy five percent of the R and M cost. Repair and maintenance cost of any individual location is tied up directly into those fluid ends. And for at the beginning of this process, those fluid ends lasted. Their usable life was roughly somewhere between 450 to 525 pumping hours. And so when we start thinking about this transformation process, the goal, our goal was to double the life of those fluid ends to go from 500 hours to 1,000 hours. Now, context-wise, those fluid ends, if you bought one from an OEM today or an OEM at the time, were roughly $49,000. And the cost to have all of KCF sensors on every piece of equipment on location on a monthly rental was less than half of just one of those fluid ends. So the magnitude of savings early on, if you only could preserve and only could gain double the hours or double the life expectancy of one twentieth of those on location, it would more than pay for the cost of having all of the technology present. And so that, that was the stated goal. That was, that was how we were going to go ahead and measure. And as long as we passed that hurdle, the, the math was easy. There was so much more than that. And as it's turned out, obviously, five years later, you know, we, we've moved we've moved the goalposts a couple of different times in, in, in order to continue to improve. And, and we've seen so many other benefits. But, you know, at the very beginning, the humble beginnings, the 92 percent or why we were successful and those that weren't were, were really based on the, that simple math. Got it. How would you say, I mean, how do you quantify it? So you were at 450 to 525 in terms of pump life, fluid and life. Where are you today? Like how, how long did it take you to achieve, you know, a meaningful, dramatic improvement? Well, I, I mean, dramatic improvement was almost, I'll, I'll tell you, um, we started in Shreveport in, in the Haynesville, which is a super, super high pressure area. And, and we were able to achieve results. I don't think we had one single month that we didn't, ultimately save enough to offset and pay for the KCF products. So I, I will tell you that the, the response was almost immediate. We'll, we'll call it two months. And what I will tell you today is the life expectancy. Not only have we achieved doubling that, but now we're um, twice that. So over the course of five years, we've gone from, you know, 450, 500 hours to somewhere 1590 to 1600, some much longer than that. It's, I mean, you know, when I talk with people in other industries about that, it, people have a hard time believing it or understanding it, you know, that, that that much improvement is possible if you run your equipment optimally and your people actually take it seriously. But it's, you know, it, you know, it's true. It's, uh, it's wild. I, I think people struggle with the belief, um, one, be, one, because it's the simplest things that we somehow don't believe. I mean, you, you've heard me say it before that I, I think we could have achieved a tremendous amount of improvement if I would have hired three or four extra guys that were able to do nothing more or gals that were able to do nothing more than stand on the back of a pump truck with a flashlight and identify these problems. How, however, in order to hire those people and to give them a flashlight to let them stand, I would have put them in harm's way in a zone in which they, they couldn't be because the, the loss of life or limb was too great. And so w once you kind of, you know, take a step back and, and look at the simplicity piece, you know, it, it's just hard for people to believe that you can achieve that much on, on something that's as simple as, you know, people actually doing the right thing. Let's talk about that. So that you're kind of touching on the safety side of it, you know, for the, for the people. And just for some, again, for some perspective of those that don't know uh, upstream oil and gas, you know, these pumps are pumping extremely high pressure fluid, you know, 10, 12, maybe 14,000 PSI, enough to cause severe damage uh, if, if something goes wrong mechanically. 
Um, and at that time, it was kind of the industry was in the process of uh, setting the rules so that people actually are not allowed to go in, even be in there while they're pumping. Tell us about the, um, the impact on safety. You know, how has this affected your people and their ability to operate safely? So of, of all the things, um, of all the cultures or all the habits or all the SOPs that are the hardest to change inside a service company like ours or the oil field in general, is most of the people that work in our business are, are thought of being, uh, you know, the, the, the wildcatters or the outlaws or the people that are larger than life that are, you know, su super, superhuman strength. And part of that, you know, that, that uh, machismo that goes along with that has had always bled over into the safety culture. And, you know, his, historically, we've hurt a lot of people in our business. Um, and r right about the time, about the 2008 through 2010, 12, and 13, we, we began to have this huge ramp up in the U.S. shale and U.S. shale production. There was kind of a spike of injuries and some fatalities and some really, really awful things that had happened. And, and we began to um, really apply a little bit more, I, I, I won't say more safety procedures, but we, we did it with a lot more vigor in terms of being able to try to engineer all the possible opportunities to hurt people out. We hadn't done that before, you know, over the history of my experience in the oil field, you know, we'd hurt a lot of people for, for a lot of years. And we finally began to have to face the fact that safety was something that was um, not, not only was it real, but it was the really the anchor that was going to keep us in one spot and not allow us to move into the future and it became paramount for all companies, uh, both the operator as well as oil field service providers. So I say all that to say this, we've, we've eliminated in what, we've, what we call our red zone. And that red zone encompasses the places that we use our sensor technology currently today. It's on the back of the pumps where the high pressure and our people no longer have to go in there to, to look or to verify or to listen, which was something that we used to do. Um, so our safety record has gone from, um, you know, the industry average is about 2.56 total recordable incident rates. And that incident rate is based on 100,000 man hours of work. And so on a normal year, we, we actually operate 7 million man hours. And so if you, our total recordable incident rate since 2015 has hovered below the 0.45, in just the last two years in a row, we've gone to a 0 0.023. So our, our incident rate is almost approaching zero. And we are so proud of that. Yeah. It, I mean, Part it's really unbelievable. I mean, it, the math on that, I mean, you're, you're talking a hundred times lower than the, the normal typical industry average. How, how much of that is, so, so you get, again, there's technology, there's people and there's leadership. What is it that makes that happen? What is it that makes FTS achieve that and, and sustain it? I mean, you're talking for two years now being like well under 0.1. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. The, 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 fir the first thing is you, you have to have great field supervision. I mean, it is the frontline supervisor's responsibility, his passion, his desire to make sure that everybody on location is safe. So, so that's the first piece. The second piece is we're absolutely relentless when it comes to finding ways to engineer out or find ways to eliminate the problem. We, we recognize that we work in an industry that is inherently dangerous. And the only way that we can guarantee, you know, the, the old saying is the only way to get zero is to not work. I can guarantee you that I won't have any injuries or any incidents if I don't do any work. Well, that's not an option. So the next option is, is we have to be diligent, vigilant, we have to engineer ways around it and we have to apply technology to it. And so those are the, those are the three things. Yeah. You know, you know, when, when we take a step back and, and you think about it, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking, but when you're doing it every single day, it is almost the fiber of our being. I mean, it's, it's a point, it's a place, it's a point in time and it's a road that we've traveled and it, it, it's just, it's not commonplace, but it's who we are. It's what we are. Yeah. You know, I have the privilege of seeing what happens in such a variety of industries. And, you know, really every, 
every customer we have, every company we work with takes safety very, very seriously. And for most, it's, you know, literally the top priority, get the job done because you have to get a job done. Otherwise you don't exist. But right with that is do it as safely as possible. Everybody gets home safe. However, right from the start, I mean, because of what you described, you know, the, just the challenges of the oil field to this day, I don't, there aren't other industries where every single meeting begins with a safety briefing and a reminder of what are the safety impacts and, um, you know, on site, you, you don't get there unless you have the proper briefing briefings. And I mean, everyone uses PPE, but it's just, it's at a whole elevated level just in, in context. And it's really, you know, remarkable people think about, especially upstream oil and gas as being kind of a, a you know, a wildcat or a maverick, uh, you know, activity, which, you know, is fair. Yeah, I think yeah, a lot yeah, of we are. But, but you do it with this heightened attention to safety. It's almost like astronauts or something, you know, you're doing, or, or um, fighter pilots, like you're, you're doing such a dangerous thing that you have to take it extra seriously. And then when you do, what's remarkable is that you, your, your incident rate levels are far lower than they are in much more benign industries. And it's just, it's just remarkable. What, one, of the, one of the last things I, I, I kind of want to brag a little bit about our South Texas district. Um, they have gone three complete calendar years and over three million man hours worked with zero incidents. And let me put that in context. That is a business that's made up of 400 Mavericks that work 12-hour shifts that travel approximately 118 miles one way a day in a crew van that work 14 days on and take seven days off in the snow, not very much in South Texas, a little bit of rain, not very much, lots and lots of heat, lots of adverse conditions, and they've managed to do it three years in a row without an incident. And that is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. What I find so inspiring about it is that it's, you know, just as we talked about with the, you know, increasing the pump life and reducing the downtime, improving the safety, these same things are, are more achievable than I think most believe that they are for other, you know, I, I think other industries can have as dramatic of improvements in their safety record, at least as much as it relates to their machinery and their culture of how they, how they treat each other, how they treat things. So yeah, it's just a, it's a great showcase of what's possible. Can, can I, can I tell a story that really kind of talks a little bit about, I, I think some of the other issues that, that safety faces across our nation and across the world. Please, that's what we're here for. I, I was, uh, I wasn't present at this meeting, but my boss, my, my Halliburton boss was there. He was in a meeting in Houston and he had all of the region VPs, all of the executive VPs and the COO. And he asked everybody in the place if they, if they had any children that were of working age post-college for those people to stand up. And then he asked those that had children that were working age that weren't in college to stand up as well. And then he asked how many of those people, of those children that were working age, were currently working for Halliburton, and they all sat down. There was not one single executive in the organization that had a child that worked for Halliburton. And his response was, our organization, Earl P. Halliburton, built this on families, on brothers and fathers and sons working together in a place that they could make a tremendous income for their family. And yet you're telling me that based on safety and safety only is the reason that your children are not working for the company. And everybody in the room said yes. That was the moment inside the Halliburton organization where safety became a core competency, it became important to everyone. Once, once it hit that close to home to the executive, and it has to run from the top to the bottom, I, I cannot pay lip service about safety and then be on location and not practice it. So that's remarkable. When when was that? I, I uh, when when did that happen? It was like it was late two thousand and seven. Okay, around that same time, where this inflection point we're talking about. Wow. If you look big picture, so you've talked about. I mean, you you basically have talked about eliminating seventy five percent of the non productive time, eliminating. I mean, basically nearly all of of recordable safety incidents, increasing the equipment life by between three and four times. If I'm doing the math right. You are. Uh, how do you, you know, people always want to know economic impact, you know, the, 
How do you how do you answer that question if somebody says how do you measure the impact of this economically? Well, so there's so there's, there's a couple of ways that I can answer it. I, I mean, the first is it's in the hundreds and millions of dollars of savings, right? I mean, that that's the pretty that, that's the easy short math to do, and we can back that up a million ways. But one of the other things that I that I want to I want to share with the audience as well is when we started the organization, the, the restructure, the remodel, the the revamp, the the regrowth prior to this relationship with KCF. We, we were burdened with a company that had 1.6 or $1.2 billion worth of debt. Up until the middle of last summer, we were able to pay back through cash and free cash flow, all but $500 million in that debt. During the course of that run-up, during the course of that time in the market, we, we were able to IPO. And during that IPO, we took proceeds of $300 million. So if you, if you just do the math, on the back of the napkin and think about the hundreds of millions of dollars of impact that it that we were able to save and pay down debt that that's the most remarkable part of this KCF story this KCF relationship this transformation inside what can be done what are what are all the possibilities now there are some bumps along the way there are some there, there are some dollars and cents and value that go far beyond those numbers that someone else will achieve after I'm long gone and dead based on what we were able to do here. But that's how we think about it inside the organization. Yeah. I appreciate that. If I may, I mean, I'm just, I'm really actually just genuinely interested to ask how you describe this, but you know, you, so go back to 2015, 2016 FTS, was it kind of this time when those, those, those three ingredients were making, you know, it the right time to change, but what, what if we didn't come along? Like what, how, what do you think is, is, I don't know, special or, or was the enabler that you saw from my company that, that I don't know, fast track these things or helped you do it? Well, the, the single biggest, well, I, it, it's hard to say single, Jeremy, because that, that, that would say that the KCF organization, um, I, I think three, again, here we're back to the three things again. You, you believed in your product probably more so than even I believed in it at the beginning. So let's start there. And, and when someone has that overwhelming conviction and, and then you add a sales leader like you had with Ben, it, it, creates, it creates its own wake. So, so let's start with that. So, so KCF in 2015 and 2016 believed without a shadow of a doubt that they could change my business and change the industry. Still believe that today, by the way. The second thing that happened is you had enough vision and enough foresight and enough belief in this relationship that you took a chance with a young engineer from Penn State and you put Blake in my office. Now, make no mistake, it could have been any of the 25 other young engineers that you had. But somehow, someway, Blake had the right chemistry and fell in line with myself and with Jamie, our operations manager at the time. And there was some level of dynamic chemistry that is almost unexplainable. But he, he believed in the product. He believed in our business. And we would continue to push one another um, from 630 in the morning until 7 or 8 o'clock at night all day, every day, even on weekends about what we could do, what we couldn't do. There was this level of excitement, this level of enthusiasm that he brought to the team and to the organization. And then the third piece of the puzzle is no matter, no matter what happened, no matter what the outcomes were, everybody inside the KCF organization was willing to move to the next step, fix it, change it, get new batteries, you know, adapt. Uh, innovate, write new software, get new software, try, try to figure out how to make the organization, how to make my organization better through your own intellectual curiosity. Yeah. Learn. I just, uh, it's a whole story of learning. I love that you, that you identify the people, you know, Blake and Ben. And I mean, there's, there's so many others that we both know, but that I think that's something that people in other industries miss is they, they think in, in some ways they're more sophisticated, at least in their engineering thinking or approach. Um, that they they miss out on the human element and that and therefore think that you can just sort of buy some sensors or buy some technology, buy an AI algorithm, and your problems will go away. When in fact, 
it's the people working together and learning together that actually makes the, the real dramatic change. I mean, that's what we've, I think, seen together. Uh, without a doubt. With, without a doubt. And, and, and look, we all have friends in other industries that we go to at social gatherings and, and we listen to their woes. And, and I've, I've never been to, I've never been involved in one of those conversations where I didn't walk away shaking my head thinking, you know, it's the people, dummy. It's the people. It's not the products. It's not the, it, you know, it, it, it all comes down to the people element. Yeah. And I think it will for a long time. I think it's just, it's it, the technology can, can enable great things, but it, if it's, if the people don't change, then it doesn't really make much difference. That's, that's one of the biggest things I think I've learned in the last 10 years. Uh, without a doubt. I, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we need to talk about as we, as we move into the segue about what's going to happen next. What, what's the future hold? What does it look like? You know, what's going to happen inside our industry? Um, yeah, that's exactly where I want to go. I want to talk about, yeah, what's happening now from your point of view, what's happening next in, you know, the, the, because in addition, you know, doing a lot of what we've talked about happened between 2016 and 2018 or 19, you know, and, you know, having this operations center, I've, we have companies today that talk about the hypothetical, you know, having a centralized operations center where you have a team that's looking at all of your operations and equipment and making real-time decisions. And you and I both know you were doing that in 2018, <laughs> but, but so much has happened since then. And, and now what can you share with us about what, what FTS is doing now and, and what you find most exciting? Well, I, I am absolutely excited about automation. And, and we, we, we throw that term around all the time about automation. I, I mean, our, our, the number one, the highest priority, the, the, the forefront of all of the meetings behind the safety component of our business is MIQ. And, and it's the machine learning that's going to get us, that, that's going to provide my folks on location and my customers on location the ability to make a change with the equipment in milliseconds compared to minutes. And let me just pause, buddy, to M MIQ for the listener is a, it's a KCF software package uh, called Machine IQ that monitors the health of machinery, provides predictive uh, diagnostics and analytics in real time based on a, you know, whole, a whole body of work with um, you know, machine learning and, and AI that's led to algorithms that are, that are fielded today. That's what, that's what we're talking about. And, and so those algorithms and all of that learning, um, we have been gathering and, and moving towards from the very beginning. It, it didn't take very long. I, I would love to tell the story that I was able to see, you know, this digitalization, this automation from the very beginning, from the moment I sat in the EQT office, but I didn't see it at the time. But it didn't take very much longer once we recognized what all these signatures and, and what giving all of our equipment a voice would do. Um, in, in the long term. So let's fast forward five years to currently where we are today as we think about what this autom automation is going to wind up doing and, and what we call the load balancing. And and really for the listeners, you know, you, you've heard me talk about we've, we've moved the needle from efficiency. We've eliminated 75% of, of non-productive time from before. Well, the, the, the next big step is to be able to make changes on location real time to move it from minutes to milliseconds. That's not going to push the needle because we're all bound by time and space. This 24 hour, you know, we haven't figured out a way to engineer around the 24 hour time clock, but that's really what we're up against. We, we don't believe that, that this automation piece is going to move us that much more efficient as it relates to time. But what it will do is it will free up so many more resources, brain power on location that normally we're focused in on taking care of changing pumps, moving gears, switching gears, any, any part of the system that hasn't been automated. And it'll allow them to evaluate the job and evaluate what's really going on, the health of the equipment, real time with the data while this is doing the other, the, the monitoring piece of, of the rate and pressure. So it frees up those resources. And what's the implication then? You know, what is it? So actually, I'll ask you two questions together. What's the implication? And then with that, how close are we? So you, you keep moving the bar on your ideal, you know? The ideal one, moving the, the goalpost with this MIQ piece, we, we are currently testing it right now and we, we have huge positive results. So what I will tell you is in a nine inning baseball game, we're in set, we're, you know, we're past the seven, seventh inning stretch. I'm bringing in the left-hander. He's going to come in and close. And, and we should, we should be, you know, we're, we're moving at, at a pace rapidly to get us 
and, and this will move us ahead of every single other company in our space, probably by at least two, if not three years ahead of everybody else. Number one and number two, the implications are those other people that we have on location, much like the NOC center where they're evaluating multiple um, multiple frack crews are being monitored by one engineer or one service supervisor looking at machine health, looking at some, some of the KPIs and the real-time data that's coming in. We'll, we'll, again, now be able to free up some more resources on location. It will almost make the supervision or the, um, the, the use of the assets on location, we'll be able to do more, operate more than one location remotely from the NOC through this load balancing equation, which is huge. I mean, right, right now, if you think about a current crew, a current shift that I talked about before is made up of 13 EOs, one van lead and one service supervisor. So it's made up of a total of 15. What we could wind up doing is we could take that 15 and convert, um, we, we, could, we could double. We could effectively double the size of our scope and reach with half of the people that we currently have today, which, which is, is just fantastic. When you take a look at it from the field perspective, you know, they're a little bit concerned that we're, you know, going to eventually get into some sort of automation and artificial intelligence and that they'll no longer have a job. But the way we view it is it gives them more job security because now the people that we have, the people that we continue to train, the people that we have uh, on the bench that are able to develop new skills will only enhance our great company. It, it won't hurt it. We won't lose any people. We'll just be able to redeploy them into things that they were skilled and gifted to do outside of sitting in a van trying to operate, you know, tr trying to decide whether or not station number 14 needs to go to another gear and more RPMs when the computer can do that faster, quicker, easier, and cleaner and no emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, buddy. I see that dynamic. It's, it's such a fascinating dynamic of this whole industrial transformation that, that we, you know, you, from the worker side of things, not so much from the company and the leadership, but people think that the technology is going to change their job or take their job or they, you know, cause companies to downsize. But the, the overarching message or the story is just such the opposite. It's exactly what you described. We see it all the time. It just like what people I think don't realize until they see it is that nobody benefits when a pump blows up, you know, nobody benefits from doing a, a dangerous job that causes a problem. And so when you when you can leverage technology to solve the problems, what happens is the people all elevate their skill set and they become more productive and more focused and safer. And it that's what makes it so fun. You, you see the teams, and I mean you've seen this so much more than I have because you've actually done it, you've led it. Isn't it fun when you see people like truly embracing the technology and just elevating uh, what they do and the way they see themselves? Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I mean, if if you as a leader or a manager in any company, in any part of this industrial transformation, and you're not absolutely geeked about watching your people get better, I, look, I, I think you need to check out and go do something else. The, the technology application gives you the ability to free and release the actual potential of all of the people that you have working for you. And if you can't get excited about that, then it's just another, you know, meeting brief. It's just another dashboard that you have to look at. It's just another piece of technology that you either have to do some ROI calculation for that becomes some, some sort of financial metric that's on your scorecard that you think about on a quarterly basis for the board and the board deck in the stock market. And, you know, what a travesty that all is. Because the value and the beauty is harnessing the intellect of people that can help grow. All the great ideas come from the people that are swinging the hammer and doing the work. They never come from all of us that sit in the corner office. The, the, the one thing that I love to say the most, and I believe, and, and I'll shout it till I die, when I sit in my office in downtown Fort Worth, Texas, I cannot see one single frack location, one single wellhead here. Therefore, I am exponentially dumber the more I sit here, the further away I am from the wellhead because all of the lessons learned happen there, whether that's on the manufacturing floor, whether that's on location, whether that's sitting on a CNC machine running a lathe, I mean, any of that. Yeah, I totally agree. And when you, you know, there's just such a convergence with some of the best run manufacturing companies, you know, you're like the, the lean companies like Toyota being probably the most notable it's so philosophically aligned with the way they see it, you know, going to the Gemba, being at the front lines, because that's where the innovation comes from. What I think people are realizing, I mean, not, <laughs> I guess about 8% of, of people, 
are realizing that, that that's exactly what happens is you, you elevate because you're bringing, you're connecting those dots. You're, the people who are out experiencing and learning and noticing things are able to actually internalize and connect the dots and do something with it because they're not just trying to, you know, stay safe and, and put out, you know, fires and explosions and, and, you know, unexpected failures of machinery. So can I come back to that? There's a question I wanted to ask you. And um, I mean, we've covered a lot here. This is just, I just so appreciate having this conversation with you. You talked about being, a, you know, a two, three years ahead of, of other companies that are, that are trying to do some of these same things. Can you just talk kind of, it, it, there's two levels that are really, I think, interesting to me, certainly. The rest of oil and gas, you know, the whole oil and gas industry, which is going a whole, undergoing a whole lot of change in addition to this digital transformation, industrial transformation. And then secondarily, you know, all of just industry, manufacturing and, and power generation and other industrial operations. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the implications will be when the, the light bulb goes off, as it did for you in 2016, and, and companies undergo this change? Sure. Um, so, so let's take the first piece. When I say the two or three year head start, um, I, I guess I got to build a little context on the back of that. You know, early on, I said we, we had the opportunity of building on the backs of giants. Um, we had a great company to start with, a great organization to build from and to move towards. Also, in, inside that whole sentence, inside that whole paragraph, inside this whole organization, we've had a mountain of debt that we had to repay and, and, and try to live through and understand and grow. And during the course of that time, our only goal um, th that we could possibly even think about doing was to take care of that debt service. As we've gone through taking care of that debt service, we've been able to partner on the KCF piece, realizing the savings and, and all the things that I talked about before, our ability to pay back all of that additional money. Well, during the course of that time, one of the things that we have suffered from as an organization is the notion that we have not invested in what the industry would say is technology, which I think is absolutely remarkable because people are spending additional money on things that really won't make a significant impact. And, and I don't mean that to be negative and I don't mean that to be a naysayer, but, but people are talking about investing in, um, you know, in enhancing, you know, their, their software, their software platforms, um, do, doing some of the, some, some of the things that I would call ancillary services or ancillary platforms around, you know, their core competency of pressure pumping. Whereas we've done nothing more than pay back debt and give our equipment a voice so that we can continue to save, cut cost, be safer, be more efficient and move forward. And so with kind of that as the context behind without, without bashing the rest of the industry, what, what I'm anxious for is once MIQ becomes commonplace, once MIQ, I install it in all of my locations, once we get to the full automation piece, all of a sudden, all of those sleeping giants, all those people that were looking over their shoulder and down their nose at our ability to continue to, to not invest in the things that the talking heads thought were important, we will be able to have a coming out party that will change um, both our customers' view as well as our competitors' view. It will give us a chance to showcase our people. It will give us a chance to showcase the technology that, hey, we can do it with, we can do it safer, we can do it faster, we can do it cleaner, we can do it more efficient with less people and brighter people. And the customer will be the beneficiary as opposed to investing in technology that we don't know was going to come to fruition for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, so I'll, I'll put a comma there and pause at that. So, that, so that's, that's kind of the driving force behind our coming out party with MIQ. The, the other piece that's going on inside our business today, and most of us know, is, is we keep, continue to keep talking about the ESG initiative, or if, if, if those that aren't familiar with the ESG initiative, it's, it's the environmental sustainability, trying to move away from our carbon footprint, trying to move away from greenhouse gases, leaning towards electric power, electric cars, wind generation, solar generation, all, all, all things energy and all things affordable energy. And most of our business has been moving towards what we consider to be electric fleets. Um, the electric fleets kind of fulfill two, two parts of the ESG initiative. Number one, it'll, it allows you to say that your carbon footprint is smaller because you're not burning diesel. You'll be burning natural gas and generating electricity to go ahead and move towards that. So that's a technology piece that they've, they've pushed forward. However, the, the one thing that's super interesting and that we're awful proud of is because we've invested in the KCF technology and moving full towards automation, while some of the others have spent R&D money trying to, to reinvent 
um, electric generation through turbine power. This technology will be applicable once there is a better solution for electric frack fleets or bifuel frack fleets or any of the next power generation that we move to. The fundamental piece, the technology that we've invested in, allows us to showcase this platform regardless of what the environmental and the ESG energy portion becomes. Yeah. It relates to something we see in so many industries, you know, a very important change, like a change to the to the way that the whole industry is powered. The actual damage that happens to the pumps has nothing to do with what's driving it, you know, whether it's an electric motor or a diesel engine or a, a, a windmill, hypothetically. The, the What actually happens is in the nitty gritty of the pump itself, of the machinery. And so chronic in so many other industries, technology development is often not very well aligned with the actual operational needs. The pattern I see is that the majority of the op- operational problems are just right, or, right under our noses. You know, it's just the stuff that you're working with every day. There are things that can be improved that are just different than the status quo that we're used to. And that's what I think that FTS has done so remarkably is you focused on the thing that's actually changing. So, you know, we've been talking for a while. I want to ask just a kind of open-ended, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to spend some time on and share? Um, yeah, I, I think I'd like to take a walk down memory lane just to kind of let the audience understand what this relationship has really been like. And, and I think what what is possible, um, not just inside upstream oil and gas, but across the the entire manufacturing process or across the entire nation, to, to be honest. If you haven't had an opportunity to engage with the KCF team uh, at, at, a, at a level other than just kind of a superficial, maybe trade a few emails or listen to a presentation, I, I think you're, you're missing out on a really unique opportunity. And, and I, hopefully this won't make you blush too much, Jeremy, but, but the challenge really is in my career, I, I'm an old gray haired guy. I've, I've been in the business a long time. And I can't think of one single relationship, business or otherwise, that has challenged me more intellectually, challenged me more personally, financially, um, has provided this much encouragement, this much belief uh, in, in a product, in an industry, in America. And, and I don't mean to sound trite. I don't want it to sound gushy. But what KCF has managed to do for FTS is, is provide a partnership that is real and authentic. We've, we've saved a tremendous amount of money. We've advanced um, the technology. We've grown our people. We've shared in the struggles. We've shared in, in the challenges. But at every turn, KCF has always been there. KCF has always led the way. They've always challenged and pushed forward. And look, I, I can't speak highly enough about on what you guys have done for me personally, as well as for our organization collectively the industry, as well as, look, America. I mean, you guys have made a gigantic step change for us, which has impacted the price of oil, Im- impacted all, all the things that go along with that. So number one, I want to say thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that, buddy. And that does, it doesn't make me blush, but it does bring tears to my eyes because I'm just, I'm so proud of it. I'm just so proud of what, uh, what's been accomplished. And it's your accomplishments, but just the way you described our role in it uh, just uh, makes me really proud. You should be. You absolutely should be. You know, kind of one of the other things that I wanted to also hit hit on. You know, I've had the unique pleasure of going to some other places and see and, and seeing some other manufacturing processes. Um, I've I've gone and, and had the opportunity to be involved in some of the construction industry, and I've got friends and mentors in in other parts of the business. I've yet to see any business that couldn't benefit from the sensor technology. If you have anything that moves, there's value. And even if you don't have anything that moves, there's also value in the fact that the way KCF thinks about the future, the way they think about current business, the way they think about automation, the way they think about some of the things that I don't even understand and can't comprehend. But the, the value goes far beyond just the sensor technology. You can buy sensors anywhere. I, I think you can buy you know, algorithms. I mean, you can, you can do your Google search and, and come up with a million other reasons why you should find the low cost leader and maybe the other vendors and some of the other things that go along with it. But the challenge is if you don't engage in someone who is, and I guess to say it best, KCF wants their partners to succeed. And if you don't engage in that, you are missing out. That, uh, that is exactly how we see it. Yeah, I just did. I don't think I could say it as well as you. I know I couldn't. I, I, uh, I mean, I think that's maybe a good place to stop, buddies. That's, um, that really sums it all up because it is, it's all about the, it's not about the technology. It's about 
making American industry better, safer, more productive, um, more powerful. And, you know, and I'll, I'll reflect it back to you because it, what you've accomplished over these last five years is just, uh, it, it's remarkable. It's a reason for that, you know, 92% rate of failing to achieve game-changing results, even out of the 8%. I don't, I don't know a company that would even contemplate that it's possible to achieve what you, what you have achieved in the numbers you were talking about earlier. And I think so much of that goes to FTS, but to you personally, because it's, you know, the things you've done to lead the people and to, con to convince them, to motivate them, to, to pay attention to something that they didn't used to think was important and, and to create believers out of people. That's what really makes it click. And uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's been a remarkable ride. And I thank you for that. You are so welcome. Great. Well, I think we should wrap there. This is the Industrial Transformation Podcast. I'm Jeremy Frank, and I've had the pleasure of speaking today with Buddy Peterson, Chief Operating Officer of FTS International. Thanks, Buddy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com. And check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.